couple of weeks ago when Steve was talking to me about doing this, he was telling me that he always wanted to go see a volcano. <laughs> and he's going to get more than an eyeful, I think. Just pray that it doesn't interfere too much with their trip. But we do need to keep those people in prayer, don't we? That's terrible what's going on there right now. So many people have lost their homes. Do we want to check real quick and see if our mics are good? know how to work this okay that one's on Lydia is yours on okay Sheila is yours on check check okay we're good okay well good morning on this rainy day um it's nice to come together as a church family because that's what we are we're a family and um I want to start by sharing um from Hebrews chapter 12 one of my favorite verses or a verse that I, I use a lot in my own personal life. Um, it goes along with this theme that t- uh, Steve's been talking about with um, concerning baggage. And um, he's done a good job with presenting a lot of different aspects. This morning I'll introduce just a second our, our um, panel here and I'm um, going to be sharing today a, a little bit here, and they're going to be sharing a lot, and we're going to be talking about baggage and a little bit of a different aspect of baggage. But I want to start out with um, Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul paints a picture for us here of a race. Um, That would have been something common and understood in that time period. Um, he, you can get the image of racers at the starting line and the gun goes off and they're running the race, a long race, a marathon, we could say. And you see them coming up uh, around the corner and you see these fellows and ladies who are fit and trim and ready to run the race and then you see that on their backs, many of them have big, heavy backpacks that they're carrying, encumbrances, baggage, loads. And that's what Steve's been talking about. You know, and it comes in a lot of forms, and everybody out here has, in some form or another, has baggage. It may be baggage that you created yourself. It also may be baggage that's been created for you. And you're carrying that load. And it could be baggage that, you're, that belongs to the ones that you love, that you're, you're involved in and trying to help them deal with and go through. Um, but we're, all, we're not immune from it. We all have baggage that we try to deal with in our lives from the time we're very little till the day we die. I hope today as we go into this, and we start here in just a second with our panel, I hope that you will um, apply and think about in your own life um, those, those who you love, those who are, um, that you care for, those that you are reaching out to, and the way that you can impact them better, and the way that you can in your own life deal with some of these uh, issues and problems of baggage. So today, we're going to be looking at habits, obsessions, and addictions. And one of the things I love about this congregation and this church is the openness that we are real people, that we love each other, 
and that we, and Steve and the leadership has encouraged all along, we can see it by the signs that are up on the walls. I remember back when we did that and we came and we presented um, who we were and how Christ has changed us. We are across so many things in this church where we try to get down to the nitty-gritty and the realness of life in this, this race that we're running in this journey. And so we come together today to help and encourage each other. And I'm really thankful for the panel of people that we have, and I want to introduce them, and I'm going to back up a little bit because I'm not sure that on this side you can see very well. But to my right here is Sheila. We have Bob, Betty, and my wife, Lydia. Um, Each of them, we're going to start here in a second, and they're going to share a little bit of their story to start out with. And then I'm going to interview them, we're going to go through some questions, and we're going to talk about this concept of baggage. Lydia is up here with us because she is a counselor, and so she's going to bring some insight from that perspective as well. So we're going to start, first of all, with Bob. And Bob, I'd like for you just to take a couple minutes, if you would, and just... Because a lot of people, maybe you don't know Bob or haven't met Bob, and so you don't know his story. So he's going to take a couple minutes here, and he's going to share his story to begin with. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob Galbraith. Um, I came into, well, first off, I grew up in a church family. Uh, my mom was a believer. I had a grandmother that was a, a believer. My dad was not until many, many years later. Um, it was a difficult childhood, middle child of five. Um, I got it from both ends, so to speak. And uh, there was a, I was bullied in school. I was very tiny. I had uh, somebody else that was very close to me that a couple of years older that would beat on me regularly. So it didn't take long to um, come to a point in my life where when I got older to rebel. Um, But through God's grace, life has uh, brought me through many experiences and kept me alive and brought me here. This has been my home church for eight years, and I just want to say I miss everybody. I've moved recently to Sarasota. Uh, I was asked to come back up and visit and speak with everybody. So just briefly, that's where I am and who I am. Thanks, Bob. Sheila, would you share with us the same question, a little bit of your Hello, everybody. My name is Sheila Fields. Uh, happy holidays. Um, just a little bit about my, my story. I'm the youngest of nine children. Um, my family addiction was rampant in my family from my first day. You know, that's, that's, my mom and dad were alcoholics. It was a lot of violence, a lot of chaos, you know. Um, I actually used my first mind-controlling substance at the age of eight. I was eight years old. And, um, and it escaped. I took a, it, it took me away from the trailer park and from the worry and the things that, you know, that I was so afraid of as a kid. So um, I've I'm, I'm been married twice. I'm not married now. Um, because of something that happened when I was real young, I was unable to have children. Um, and some of you know, but a lot of you might not know, that I did went to prison that's where my addiction in my life led me and so more will be revealed and thank you for having me betty hi hi my name's betty um it's funny that um the other two panelists came from large families because um i pretty much grew up as an only child 
And uh, my brother's nine years younger than I am. My parents are both immigrants, so I'm first-generation American. And um, I, um, I struggled with loneliness, and um, I just felt very alone all the time. And my parents worked a lot. And, I mean, it's just the way I process life, and I didn't process well. And um, I just, I remember always being very lonely and, um, and running. I started running away when I was maybe 11. And because, um, you know, my dad was pretty strict and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, that's just the way it was. And um, so little by little, my life uh, just started to spiral out of control. And until... Um, by the grace of God, I was given the affliction of addiction, and I found Christ through that. And, you know, as weird as it may sound, now that I'm on this side of it, I'm grateful that it happened. Maybe not exactly the way it happened, but I'm grateful that it happened because here I am today, sharing the story with you and worshiping with you every Sunday and, um, you know spending time with my grandkids, which is what I wanted to do with my kids, but I was never present. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just very grateful that I'm here today. Thanks. Yeah, and we're, we're really thankful to have the four of them up here today. It takes a lot of courage to be able to share and um, to get a little insight into to their lives. Sheila, um, when you think back... Um, what would be some of the things that you would say that started you down that path towards drug addiction? Well, for, my, for myself, I believe, because um, I, was, I was very young, um, a lot of fear, a lot of worry. Uh, I remember, and it was an escape, because I remember, you know, my parents fighting and, you know, not being food in the, in the house, and, and I remember it took all that away. You know, all the worry, all the fear, and all of a sudden I went somewhere else, and and it felt so good, you know, just to, just to escape. And I think I think that's what started it for me. Although I, I believe it was there from the day I was born. You know? mm-hmm. So that was what was your um, drug of choice in that mostly? Well, I mean, I over my lifetime I did probably just about every drug you can you can name, but um, methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, was my drug of choice, unfortunately. <laughs> when, Sheila, when you look back, and these are hard questions, I know, but when do you think was the place where you reached your lowest in life and you found yourself? I, I do remember that, that moment. There, there was a couple of points that should have brought me there, that so much should have brought me there, where my mom, we took her off a of life support, and I was the one that had to do it. And, but I went home as soon as we took her off, and made an excuse that I needed to go home and change clothes and so on. And, and we took her off life support, and I went home to get high, you know. And um, when I come back, she was gone. So I wasn't there holding her hand like I should have been. But um, my very lowest bottom, I think, before I went to prison, we had stood out on a tarmac um, for hours in, in the sun, you know, waiting for con air. And I don't know if anybody's seen the movie, but Nicolas Cage wasn't there. I can tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, and it was, it was, you know, it, it was horrible. But I was sick. I was just as sick as I could be. And uh, my feet were shackled. My hands were shackled. 
they want you to go up this runway into the plane. You know, my knees are bad, you know, and I was shackled. So that wasn't a pretty sight. But I was, I was so sick, I had a fever. Excuse it, but my nose was running. You know, they wouldn't let me have tissue. I couldn't do anything. I got up there, finally made it to my seat and, and was so grateful just to make it to my seat. And I looked at the window and it was just greasy and dirty and, and terrible. And I was so feverish, I laid my head against it, my whole face, because it was cool. And I looked down and I said, God, I've never been as high as I am low right now. Mm. And that moment, and I actually prayed for the plane to crash. Mm. Who does that? You know, and never mind all the other people on there, you know, so that was a pretty low point for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Bob, how about with you? What was it, um, do you think, that kind of led you down that path? And then what became your addiction? Well, I became very shy and introverted. And I discovered that um, not so much with the drugs, certain ones. Um, would help me to be a little bit more outgoing, so to speak. Mm. Uh, but my drug of choice over the years became alcohol. And um, <laughs> I think it was because I was able to be the life of the party instead of being uh, closed up and in, within myself and, and hiding in the corner, so to speak. And uh, so I was able to uh, go out and meet people and do all kinds of crazy things that, normal people would not do so Mm -hmm. yeah and so what was it was an alcohol then alcohol alcohol was my uh drug of choice over the years and and did it start at what what age about was that i would say about 13 um and by the time i was 14 i was doing drugs yeah Yeah. by the time i was 15 um i was a full-blown cross-addicted alcoholic yeah cross-addiction is uh more than one addiction yeah, so loneliness and a way to become accepted. And yeah, and I was, I was, yeah, I felt rejected. My dad was always busy. He had, um, my mom worked two jobs. My dad worked three, you know, a full-time job, a part-time job, and he owned a part-time seasonal business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't have any close neighbors. They were mm-hmm. close to ages of my uh, siblings, but not really me. So I was a loner for the most part, and mm-hmm. that had a lot to do with it too, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know for a lot of you, you have... Um, children, grandchildren, and you don't think necessarily at these early ages um, how addiction can get, you know, can set in. You know, with Bob, it was about 13, huh, that you really kind of started down that path. Betty, how about you, and, and what would be, what would you see as got you started into this, or what were some of the things that contributed, and then where where did you find yourself at your lowest point? Um. <clears throat> I think I was about 12, and um, I just fit in. You know, all of a sudden I had friends, and um, everybody was like, hey, you know. And I had friends, and, um, and fast friends. And uh, some of you that know me know I'm pretty friendly and outgoing, and that made it even better, and everybody was just like that. So, um, and I do believe that, you know, the devil was behind that because he knew what my weakness was and he used that to lure me in. Um, and what was the rest of it? Well, let me ask you this. Was it a combination of drugs? Well, it started with marijuana and then I, um, then alcohol and, um, I've done 
quite a few, but then um, during my second divorce, that was pretty emotionally just, ugh, it was horrible. And um, a friend said, here, try this, it'll make you feel better. And it was methamphetamine, and I tried it, and I felt like the Mario mushroom. For those of you that don't know Mario, it's a video game, and he eats the mushroom, and he grows big. And so, um, and it gives him more life. So I felt this false sense of empowerment that I didn't need anybody. I didn't need anybody's help. I didn't need anybody's support. I can do this on my own. And I really believe that. And, um, and then 10 years later, um, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. And I had isolated myself from my family, my friends, my kids. My, I mean, I lost a house, cars, everything. My career, everything to where I pretty much had the clothes on my back that were falling off. I was malnourished. I was spiritually dead. Um, I had um, isolated myself, and the only people that I knew or associated with were the people that were doing the same things that I were was, and um, so it was okay because we were all doing the same thing, and somehow, I mean, I had no morals, no rules, no nothing. It was just so crazy. It was like living under the world. Mm-hmm. Like when you picture... Um, I guess I watched a lot of movies. The movie Ghost, and when the guy who initially killed um, Patrick Swayze, he dies, and then the spirits come out of the ground and pull him down. That's where I lived. I I swear to you, that's where I felt that I lived. Um, You know, and over the years, little by little, you know, things that you thought you would never do are are commonplace. Mm. And it's just... So crazy. It doesn't start out that way, does it? No. You start out thinking this no, is what no, I'm going to do. No, 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 no. It's little by little. It's gradual. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Lydia, take a minute yeah. and just, um, if you would, talk about, because I know with all of us and people that we know and we're trying to deal with, some of the things that are the baggage that begin the process. Okay. Well, as, I mean, as we could hear, I think there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of thoughts out there that people who become addicted are just partiers. You know, they go to bars, they're partying, and it gets out of control, and they get addicted. But what I see usually is a very um, lonely person, a shy person, introverted, sensitive person who has a lot of pain, hurt, violence in the home, broken relationships, stress, anxiety. Those are the, the key factors that then start using a substance. And it could be any substance. It could be any behavior, really. And that substance helps. And then from that point on, it gets gradual. But there's usually a much deeper, as we could hear, much deeper cause Mm -hmm. to to that behavior. Yeah. And so dealing with the causes becomes, from your perspective, a a big factor. It's not just simply getting off the drug or the addict, whatever the addictive... Um, pattern is because there can be many things but it has to do with the underlying causes. Yeah, it's always about addressing the underlying, what caused the anxiety what was that relationship what was mm-hmm. the trauma the, the fear, whatever it is that, that you're going through, dealing with that because if not, you will return to it. Yeah. 
Let's talk about the, um, the turning point. Um, when, you know, you've shared where you were at your lowest. What, what were the things that happened at that time that caused you to begin to really open your eyes to, to begin the process of change and turning? Sheila, you share on that? Well, I, um, I was awaiting sentencing for prison, and um, my nephew, I was staying at my nephew's because he had been the one to post my bond, and my little grandniece, who I love dearly, she's like my grandbaby, and my nephew's like my son, had been in trouble. You know, she'd gotten in trouble at school over and over for the same things, you know, the same thing each time. So she was in the bedroom, and she was just crying. She couldn't control it, and she said she wanted her Aunt Shishi. So I went in there to talk to her, and, you know, her dad had disciplined her, you know, and uh, she was so mad at him, you know, and she said, I don't understand. I, you know, I, I'm not a bad girl, you know, and, and I was just crying with her, you know, because she was heartbroken, and I said, baby... Your daddy has put you in this room and did this to quieten you, for you to think about the things that you've done over and over. And, you know, all of a sudden, a light went off, and a light bulb brightened. And the next day, I called Richard, and I talked to Steve about getting baptized. Because I had told her, I said, you need to make amends with your father. You need to show him that you want to change, that things will be different. And all of a sudden, I thought, you know, I looked up, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I need to make things right with my father. You're sort of talking to yourself. First, yes, you know? I was. And, um, and the next week, I was baptized, you know, and it was never, the same, never yeah. the same after that. So, so Sheila, there was, um, there was a spiritual awakening, spirit of God. Um, Betty, how about you in that, the turning point? What were some of the things that led to the turning point? And First of all, I want to thank you for encouraging Sheila. She yeah. was very nervous, and um, it's just so awesome to see the smiling faces encouraging her because she is such a special person. Um, mine was, um, I was in jail, and I was reading the Bible, and I came across Romans uh, seven fifteen and 16, and I could not believe that this man, Paul, over 2,000 years ago, struggled with this sin within him. And it was just, I mean, I, when I read it, I internalized it. And he's like, I do what I don't want to do. And what I don't want to do, I do. But I don't know what I'm doing. And it's a sin within me that does mm-hmm. it. And it makes me does it. And why does it do that? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I thought, in that moment, um, I thought, wow, you know, mm-hmm. he wrote that for me because mm-hmm. God knew that I was going to be in that moment reading those lines and he knew that that was going to start to you know work inside of me and um, from that moment forward um, I was introduced to a 12 step 12 step program um, and that helped me uh, start my journey journey to recovery um, and I met my first sponsor there. She brought, um, she, uh, that's where I met her. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, how about you on that same question? What was the turning point that you think what happened? What were some of the things that led to it? Well, 
you know, when I look back, um, it's like Sheila said, there's so many places it should have been the low point of my life and the turning point, and they weren't necessarily the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you would think that stealing to support my alcohol and drug addiction in my teens would have done it mm-hmm. and uh, going to jail for it. You would have thought that attempted suicide in 1982 would have been that point, and it wasn't, although that was the true turning point when I laid on the highway and cried out to God to help me that I didn't want to die. That was the true turning point in my life, but it was, still wasn't the low point. Um, two DUIs, two driving on a suspended licenses from the DUIs after that still weren't. Um, I had a classic muscle car in the 80s, and uh, I had just gotten it out of the paint body shop. It was Christmas, 1985 season. And uh, traffic was backed up in Newport. It's either six lanes, three lanes each way. And somebody cut me off. I was screaming and yelling at him um, in some colorful language. And somebody else heard it, and they didn't like what I had to say. Never saw it coming. I'm sitting in my car. The window's open, radio blaring. And the next thing I know, somebody punched me through my window in my face. So I tried to get out of the car to grab my shirt. Needless to say, there's an altercation. I got blood coming down my face. I finally get the door open and knock him to the ground. My horror came when I looked and saw the faces of the two women sitting in the car in front of me. It was my aunt and my grandmother. Hmm. Wow. We were waiting on a drug dealer to bring our, our cocaine to us. Um, and I was going to a second bar. <clears throat> that was the lowest point in my life, hmm. to see the look on my grandmother's face. Um, it wasn't much longer when I made the decision that I was going to stop drinking. Of course, obviously, I wasn't going to do it on my own. Um, I was still in the process of the doing um, penance for the two DUIs, and uh, I met a man that worked at a park where I had to do my community service who was a born-again believer, and he'd come through similar situations, you know, and by that time, my dad was born again, and uh, my dad was witnessing to me in a gentle, loving way. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. So it, uh, but that was definitely yeah. the low point of my life. And I hope, uh, church, we're hearing something that's coming out very strong, and that's the spiritual awakening. We have to believe very strongly and, and understand that we have something to offer in Christ Jesus. We have, we have so much to offer to the world around us, and we see with each of the three of them there was a spiritual change in this process. Don't think because you haven't experienced this yourself that you don't have something to offer. You have love. You have Christ. Lydia, what are some of the things you see that are key to somebody getting out of this kind of an addiction? Well, I think what's been proven to be effective is a real comprehensive, I mean, we call it a treatment plan, but it's not one or two things. It's a a very well-developed treatment plan involving spiritual aspects, connecting with family, um, redefining identity, because I think with a lot of people who, str- who struggle with addictions, they lose who they are. 
um, the addiction robs them of who they are, who they were in the sight of God. And that has to be reestablished first. Um, but it, it really is a treatment plan. It's, it's dealing with true anxiety and true depression if it's there in a medical way, possibly. It's, it's a very comprehensive way, but it, it's also community. And this is where I think the church has so much to offer. It is, it is just crucial for a person struggling with anything, or especially with addiction, to get help from many people. And it takes a long time um, to get reestablished in the community, financially, finding a job, because everything is lost. Mm-hmm. And, and we really become their family. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they need a family, a real family, real relationships, deep relationships mm-hmm. that do not have the, the violence and the, the, um, the sin mm-hmm. that was experienced at a younger age. Yeah. Um, there's so much we could talk about, and we're going to run out of time before we even get through a lot of it. But um, let me ask you this. What are, what are some practical things that you believe people who are battling now with addiction need to know? Bob, we'll start with you on that. What are some practical things they should know? Um, one of the first things that I realized is that I had to walk away from any life or lifestyle that I had. Mm completely. Um, it was everything that I did involved alcohol. Everyone I associated with involved alcohol. So I had to put everything behind me and just start completely fresh with new friends and new hobbies, so to speak, and things to new interests. Um, but I had to surround myself with a support team, you know, and it was my family who were believers and stay away from the ones that weren't. Um, because part of my family were not believers, and they avoided me like the plague when I finally came to know the Lord and was redeemed from the, the addictions. Um, but it's, and it's also the support team that you receive, whether it's a 12-step group or in counseling and or in the church. I got involved in the church helping with the, the youth ministry, and I, the healing that I received was quick and monumental when I reached out to help others in hopes to prevent them from going down the road that I had gone or at least help them to steer off sooner mm-hmm. you know so it's it's more in um, getting involved with, with uh, people that are going to be positive or mm-hmm. influence around you yeah Betty somebody comes through our doors we may not know whether they're in addiction or not but we strike up a, a relationship with them and we we find out that they have done what mom said. They've left, and they're coming here because they want change. They want to know something. They want, what would you, what would you say to us as a congregation that we need to do as a, as a family in trying to reach out to people like that? Well, um, I think it's what was given to me was love and acceptance because this is um, my second time sharing my affliction, um, and I could remember the first time I was just mortified. I wanted to run out of here. Like, the church was on fire, hmm. and, um, and I didn't. And uh, people came up to me afterwards. And the verse, and I don't know exactly which one it is, is, you know, hiding your light under a bushel. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be honest, and we have to uh, just be honest because we're human. Mm-hmm. And through our afflictions is where we can show God's strength, because without him, I wouldn't be here. And, um, and, and really talking, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell people the nitty gritty, but if somebody came to me and, 
you know, asked me and talked to me, I would really, you know, share the nitty gritty because if mm -hmm. you don't know where I've been, you cannot see how far I've come through mm -hmm. the grace of God, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because uh, it's just, sometimes I, I just, I'm like, wow, how did I even get here? Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't even sing before I came to Legacy. I mean, I sang in the shower sometimes. That's it. And for me to get up here, it's just, I mean, it's all God. It, it I, has I know y'all enjoy her voice. She's got that tone. That I, I, she's brought a different, uh, her, the tone of her voice when she leads, I really like it. Um, it's a little, it's, it's a different sound, and I, and I really enjoy that. But it is, it's wonderful to see you up here. <clears throat> Sheila, um, this isn't a quick, easy process. And as a church, we pray, we befriend but there's more to this because it isn't, it's, it's a struggle. I mean, I mean, sometimes individuals who are in addictions of all kinds, not just this, they, they, they go back and then they get back moving forward again. And as a church, how do we embrace that? What do, do we need to be patient? What do we need to do in this process? Well, to be, to be honest, um, I, heard, I heard it said one way about addiction is um, one day I took a walk down the street. There was a hole. I fell in it. It wasn't my fault. The next day I went down that street. The hole was there. I fell in it. It was my fault. The third time, you know, I decided I'd walk around that hole. And the fourth time I took a different street. So, you know, unfortunately my hole was a sinkhole. You know, it, it was huge because I fell in so many times. And, um, you know, people, people want change, but change is slow. And it doesn't happen overnight. And the thing is, if you, if you have somebody in your life that's struggling with addiction, you know, I suggest never giving up, but I also suggest letting them hit their bottom. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, there's, there's nothing we can do to stop that. And everybody's got to get to that point yeah. to turn back around. Lydia addressed that, that idea of we can't, we, tr we want to save people, we want to help I people. But we're limited in that. Yeah, it, it really, well, you know, that's a tricky question. At some points, you do have to step in and save lives because they're, they're going to die. Mm -hmm. At that point, you do whatever you need to Interventions, do. Interventions, things right. that need to be as done. As a friend, as a church, or, you know, whatever. But um, at other points, you have to be very careful that you're not perpetuating the same pattern and behavior by bailing out and bailing out and helping and helping and overhelping so much that there aren't any consequences, uh, which, you know, doesn't help at all. And that's a tricky place to be, I know. And even as a family member, it's really hard. When do you stop helping a family member because you're so afraid for them and that it could get so much worse? So it, is, it really takes a lot of prayer and wisdom and I think counseling also to know, okay, this is the right time to do this, but this is the time to step back. And just yeah. really getting a lot of help with that. Yeah. But there is a time when you do have to step in and take them to detox, take them to the hospital, take mm -hmm. them in mm -hmm. because they're going to die. Yeah. Bob, how has this change, your, your experience in life changed how you see people? I don't mean to be judgmental, but I try to look deep in somebody's eyes and their heart when I meet them. 
because um, you can usually see the truth in their eyes, whether there's pain, whether there's true joy, and they're trying to cover it up. Um, and if you do see the pain, uh, it's our responsibility to reach out to them, to love them, whether it be individually or as us as a church when somebody walks through those doors for the first time. Um, yeah, and I think that, that concept of we sometimes, particularly like myself, those of you who've grown up in the church, you have this idea, we do, sometimes it, well, we've lived sort of a, a better life, somehow better than the world. And when we do that, we're, we're not looking very seriously at our own sin. And I like what Richard always says. Richard Smith says, um, except for the grace of God, there go I also. And so we're, we are going to have to wrap up because we're, we're, we're out of time. But I, I want you guys just very briefly... For somebody who is right now struggling, whether it be sexual uh, addiction, whether it be food addiction, whatever it is, and and if you have a verse you want to share just very quickly, because we don't have too much time left, but um, if you would just say something to that individual. Betty? Um, Your secrets will keep you sick. You need to find that one person and... um... You know, you don't have to just spew everything. You could just kind of like feel them out and see if that's somebody that you can trust. Mm -hmm. And um, find that person and start just, you know, letting it out. Because, um, you know, the the devil's counting on us to be ashamed. He wants us to be ashamed. You know, shame is is negative. And, um, I mean, of course, you know, if we do something and we're ashamed, but then... What is it that we do afterwards? Do we let that shame control us, or do we turn it around and uh, start to find a solution for the problem? Because as long as we're in part of the problem, we stay sick, and um, we give the devil power. And that's, you know, God's done so much for us, um, for us to just not continue to have faith. I'm starting to ramble now, so I'll just be quiet. I'm going to have to because of our time. I just want to close uh, with <clears throat> thinking about 1 Corinthians 13 and how it ends. <clears throat> After he talks about love and he says, and, and now abideth these three, or now remaineth these three. Faith, you hear the faith. Hope. And one of the things that, that I, I would say to you, all of us who are dealing with baggage, is that we believe there is hope in Christ Jesus for us to change, for someone else to change, for there to be a difference. We don't have to live in this. And then lastly, love. And love is such a huge factor. I mean, the lack of love often leads down this path. We need as a church to embrace, and in a Christ-like love, which is a firm, strong love, embrace these people. And um, I, I'm really thankful for the openness. Uh, I'd like for you to give them all a hand because I, I appreciate them coming up here and sharing today. We're going to... Y'all can go on down. We're going to go ahead and, and pray together as the band comes up. And, if, and I know that these people are, would be more than willing to talk to anybody. And, and they're going to be sitting up here if you want to come talk to them. We also have... Bob's going to stand right here with me. If you'd like to come and just pray, maybe you're praying for a loved one. Maybe you're praying for someone else. I, I, uh, maybe it's for yourself. It doesn't matter. Come on up here, and uh, you can talk with any of them. Um, and talk with me, but and seek them out um, if you if you have more questions or things you'd like to ask. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for our family. We're thankful to be here together um, in this place, in this um, this safe place, a place, Father, where. 
we can open up and we can share. And I pray, Father, that your strength, your power, the hope we have in you will be felt. Those who are struggling today, whether it be personal or for someone else, I pray that they will be encouraged. That, Father, we as a church will embrace them. That they will seek out people in the church to help them in these things. We just put all these things in your hands. In Christ's name, amen.